Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Hey, we've got the distinct honor today. Last week we, we had, a, it was a pleasure having Gilbert Nestor. How many of you enjoyed having Pastor Nestor with us? And he is incredible. And, and this week, as we were reading through Mark 1, I really was being prayerful and saying, Lord, who do you want to bring in to speak in very specific areas? Um, and it landed on the one where, uh, in Mark chapter 1, where it talks about Jesus stealing away time to be with the Father in order to do all the things that he was called to. And uh, my heart just went to Andrew Chalmers. Uh, Andrew, when did we meet? You remember what year it was? 2013. So Andrew moved here in 2013, and he and I have had a friendship since then. And um, have learned from each other, I hope. I know I've certainly learned from watching him and what the Lord has done in him. And so this morning, Andrew, through the years, he was working with Teen Challenge for years and years. And the Lord gave birth to this vision in his heart uh, to give birth to Take the City, uh, which is an outreach organization training people in cities to really, like if I could put it in my own words, to take ownership of the mission of God and to put it to work in neighborhoods, in organizations, in churches. And he seems, uh, the Lord has really blessed him and given him favor and anointing to do that. Um, but more than anything, just he's one of those people that you want to follow around because he's devoted to Jesus. And it is really sweet to walk around with people who are devoted to Jesus. And the particular anointing on their life overlaps and it challenges you and what it looks like for you to follow Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? You get around some people and they cause you to go down and then you get around other people and they really cause you to say, God, am I following you in this way? And as I should. And Andrew has always been a great friend and somebody who has challenged my faith uh, and continues to be a person who blesses us. And so this morning, will you give a wild round of applause and welcome to Andrew Chalmers, my good friend. All right. Thank you. Let's pray. You guys stand up with me. Let's pray together. It's good, good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, Father God, we just thank you so much for this incredible time that we have to worship you and to be in your presence and to read your word and to hear your voice uh, come and just have your way. Lord, thank you for each person that came this morning. I know that it's not by accident that the people that are here are here. And um, Lord, I just ask more than I speak, God, that you would just speak to our hearts. Lord, you know what each one of us need to hear. You know where each one of us are at. And so, Lord, we just give you permission right now to talk to us, to minister to us, to uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and, and uh, just have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. It's good, it's good to be here. I am, uh, I've really actually been looking forward to this since Grant asked me, probably more so than anything else I've done in, in a long time, um, honestly. And... I, I was looking forward to it because I, I really think just Grant and Chrissy mean so much to me and so many of you guys mean uh, a lot to me as well that I was just really honored and privileged to be able to be here and uh, to be able to share a word with you guys. And so uh, Grant kind of gave me the option to preach on whatever I want, which is what I'm used to, like basically, and people are like, just preach about whatever you want. And I'm like, yes. Uh, but I kind of, he, he, he said, or you could you know, teach on this passage. And I, I was like, I was like, well, tell me what the passage is and I'll tell you. And he told me the passage and I was like, oh man, I got to preach on that. And, um, and what was awesome is I, I really feel like through the process, um, 
of being invited here, the Lord has really deposited something in me uh, specifically for you. And so I, I honestly believe that, that those of you that are here this morning, that you're here to actually receive an impartation from the Lord. Uh, because the word that I'm sharing with you is it's, um, it's not a new word for me even, uh, but it's, it's a very fresh word that I feel like is from the Lord that I've really been walking in, that he's really been putting inside of me. And I believe that not only this morning are you going to hear it and be like, oh, that's great, but I actually believe that God is going to distribute grace this morning. You know, the book of Ephesians actually says that, that, that when people speak, that the hearers are able to receive grace in hearing. What that means is something you didn't have beforehand through hearing the word of God, you can actually receive an impartation of grace into your life to live a way that you couldn't live before. And that's the purpose of grace. Grace isn't to get you out of trouble because you're being bad and you hope God doesn't get you. Grace is the empowerment of God giving you the ability to live in a way that you couldn't live otherwise unless you had that grace operating in your life. Does that make sense? So I just believe God is actually going to distribute grace in people's lives this morning. Um, really in, in the most important area in anything you could ever imagine. And that's in, in the place of intimacy with God. That's in the place of communion with God. And one of the things that keeps coming to my mind is, you know, is just the, the simple quote, you know, prayer is not a means to an end. Prayer is the end. I'll say it again. Prayer is not a means to an end. Okay. Prayer is the end. And what that means is this, is many people see prayer as a way to get God to do something for us so that we can get what we think we need or what we want. But what I really feel like God is showing me right now in this season is actually like prayer is the end. Like if no matter what else happens externally in my life or whatever I experience, if I'm abiding in Christ, if I'm living in connection with him, if I'm living in communion with him, that's all I need. And I, I'm learning really the reality of contentment found, whether it's in suffering or in great joy, that, that I can have is, is found not in praying for my situation to change or for me to get what I want. Prayer is not so I can get what I want. Prayer is so that I can be with who I was created to be with. And I want to, just before we dive into the scripture, I want to walk you through the simple gospel. And I want to just paint the picture of the gospel from beginning of the scriptures to the very end. And in the very beginning, we were created by God. Adam and Eve were made by God. And they were made for two things. Number one, Adam and Eve were created in God's image to live in communion with God. God wanted us to live in relationship with him because he likes us. He, he enjoys us. He thinks we're awesome. So he wanted to be in connection with us. Number two, he created Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. So we were created for relationship. We were created for assignment, right? We were created for covenant. We were created for kingdom. Those are two kind of principles that, that you see that are woven throughout the entire Bible. And ultimately what happens is very early in the story in the book of Genesis, if you've never read the whole Bible, it's fun to read the whole thing. So you understand the whole narrative of who Jesus is. It's good to start at the beginning and go all the way to the end. And if you read it very quickly, we fail, right? We fall short and we, we fell into sin. And when we sinned, what happens is, is God said that if you eat of the fruit, we would surely die. Satan said, you won't die. We ate the fruit. We didn't die immediately, but something inside of us died. And what happened is, is the connection we were created for was immediately severed when sin came into our lives. 
And ultimately, the, 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 even the assignment that we were created for was in a lot of ways stripped away from us. And we were, we were forced into a lifestyle of toiling and labor, which was not God's intended purpose for us. We were created for assignment and for work, but it was actually intended to be incredibly joyful and fun. But instead, because of our sin, we were separated from connection with God and we were separated from this joyful assignment that God wanted us to be able to participate in. So then as you continue to read the scripture, you see God's plan to redeem mankind. Now, the word redemption is found in Ephesians chapter 1. It says that through the Son of God, I think it's 1.8, it says that through Jesus Christ, he has redeemed us, okay? Redeemed means this. It doesn't mean forgiven. Redeemed means bought back. And if I were to take my Apple Watch and I took it to a pawn shop today, it would not be able to serve its function, which I like several things that my Apple Watch can do. But when it's in the pawn shop, it can't serve its intended purpose. Why? Because it's in the pawn shop. But as soon as I go there and I pay the money, the redemption price for that watch, I can put it on, enter in my passcode, and it's restored to its original function and purpose. Redemption that happened on the cross wasn't just that you were forgiven of your sins. You were also redeemed back into what you were made for. So the cross wasn't just pointing to some ticket that allows you to get into heaven in the future. The cross actually points to a reality that you can be restored into. And that reality is that, one, you can have connection with God again. That's supreme. That is of of the utmost importance. And two, you can be restored into a labor of love that's actually enjoyable. We were created for labor. We were created for toil. We were created for this, this subduing the earth, you know, building God's kingdom, whether it's through taking care of our kids really well or running a ministry or running a business or working somewhere. God wants us to participate in that. And sin separated from us, you know, us from that. And as you begin to read the scripture, you see the story of God's plan to redeem us back to what we were created for. You see him make a covenant with Abram and, uh, and, and Sarai, and he changes their name, and then he, he blesses their lineage. And then he continues uh, in, in that storyline, he continues just working through this family. And basically, the plan for the family was that through this family, God was going to bless the entire earth through these, this tribe of people. Everything's going well until suddenly they go to Egypt. It's all awesome. They're given the best land in all of Egypt. God's blessing them. And then next thing you know, they're in slavery for hundreds of years. And then Moses appears on the scene and he rescues them out of that that season. And he takes them into the wilderness. And at the wilderness, he goes onto the mountain and he's given to them a covenant. And the covenant was actually written on tablets of stone. And it was a conditional covenant. And what I mean by that is is a conditional covenant is when, if I come into a conditional covenant with you, it means if you do this, then I will do this for you. If you don't do this, then I will do this to you or I won't do that for you. And so he comes into a conditional covenant with these people. And then the rest of the Old Testament is a story of them failing to keep the covenant. Right? And, and the covenant was really basically, if you boil it down, was, was 10 simple things. God didn't want them or he wanted them to do these things. Okay? That's all they had to do. 10 things, right? You think we could do it, but they fail over and over and over again. And I'm studying through 1st, 2nd Kings right now. And it's like, it's like really embarrassing just watching how much you know, they fail and do better and fail and do better. Right? But in the midst of 1st and 2nd Kings, 
there's, a, there's an awesome period of time in the, in the southern kingdom where Uzziah, you see Josiah, you see Hezekiah. There are these great men of God that appear, right? There's reform, there's revival. And then it gets worse again. Like Josiah is like this huge revival that happens in Israel. And the next thing you know, you read about his son and he's like a terribly wicked son. He leads the kingdom astray. And then boom, like next thing you know, they're literally all, like everything's destroyed. Everything's taken out of the temple. They lose everything, right? And it was because of their rebellion. They didn't keep the covenant and they were taken away. Now, in the midst of that period of time, uh, during the, the, the southern kingdom, when Uzziah and Hezekiah and, and sort of in that period, uh, there, was a, there were some prophets. And even later than that, there was two guys, specifically Isaiah and Jeremiah. And in the midst of this, like doing good, doing bad, doing good, doing bad, they, uh, they get these prophecies and th- there were some specific words that God began to give them. And he said, there's a ray of hope. There's actually coming a time and a season where you're not going to go up and down, up and down, up and down. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And this new covenant, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take what you guys have read on the tablets of stone and I'm going to put them on the hearts of my people. And you read that and you're like, okay, that's cool. But the reality of what that means is, is paramount. It's one of the most, the new covenant is, is, is the greatest reality we could imagine because here's, here's the thing about covenant is when God made covenant with his people, his covenant was so that he could bless them. But the problem was is they couldn't do right, so God's blessings were, were removed from them. But then he starts to tell them, wait, here's what I'm about to do. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take those things you see on stone and I'm going to write them on your heart. And I'm actually going to give you the desire to live according to the law. And then suddenly you see sort of like some weird things happen. You read Daniel. You're like, wow, this is really weird. And then they're in Babylon and then they come back, right? They start rebuilding and then pause. You don't hear anything else. Then suddenly you pick up Mark chapter 1, and that's, that's what you guys are studying. So I wanted to sort of walk you through the scriptures to Mark chapter 1 so that we understand where, we, where we're at. Nothing's been said for hundreds of years. The last rays of hope that you read in the scripture, in my opinion, are found in Joel, where there's this promise of the end times that God was going to pour out his spirit. There's a few other kind of minor prophets that say some hopeful things. Most of it's really, really negative. And then you see Jeremiah and Isaiah, you see these rays of hope in that prophetic timeline where there was going to be this new covenant. Then you hear nothing, nothing happens for hundreds of years. And then in the book of Mark, it, it appears, uh, it, it, it is initiated with um, John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist appears and he uh, begins baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins, the, uh, uh, Mark chapter 1. And I'm actually going to read, we're going to read uh, through Mark chapter 1 starting in uh, verse number 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose handles I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
So when John the Baptist is living a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, preaching a message of repentance, he starts to tell the people that he's not the guy they're waiting for, but there's someone who's about to come. And this is the one who's connected to the promises of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And I believe the greatest promises of, in the Old Testament connected to the Holy Spirit is how God would put his spirit inside of us and that he would write his law in our hearts. It's connected to this new covenant reality. So when John the Baptist starts announcing there's someone about to show up on the scene, he's telling them, listen, all the prophetic hope that you've been looking for, waiting for, for hundreds of years, you've been falling short, trying to do better, falling short, trying to do better. Guys, the guy is about to show up on the scene. In verse number nine, it says, in those days came from Nazareth of Galilee and was uh, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit imme immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was there with wild animals, and angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. <laughs> That's a funny picture. He just, they left him. They didn't even help him clean up the nets or do anything. They, they, they left him. Uh, verse 21, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately... He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the, to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. If I were to create a title for Mark chapter 1, I would say, the, I would call it this, the rising fame of Jesus of Nazareth. The whole chapter is essentially about this guy 
who no one knew of. No one knew about Jesus. Jesus wasn't famous at the, at the start of, uh, of Mark chapter 1. Jesus is a nobody from the middle of nowhere. And by the end of it, his fame has, has spread throughout the entire land. In fact, whole cities were gathering now to meet with him. So in one chapter, you see this guy going from, from really like nobody knew or cared who Jesus was to now everybody wants Jesus. In fact, he tries to go pray, and, it, and they come back, and they said, everyone is looking for you. So the amazing thing is that we see in the midst of this, this great demand now that people had for Jesus that in verse 35 it says he rose very early in the morning. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So in the midst of rising fame, in the midst of notoriety, in the midst of you know, people loving him and, and wanting to be around him, he still found a place where he got away and went to a desolate place and got alone to be with the Father. And what I want to point out just first of all is that Jesus demonstrates in this that his, his goal or his end was not fame. His goal and his end was not success. He wasn't looking to become the most famous guy in Israel. He wasn't looking to become the most successful rabbi in his land. He'd, he wasn't looking for notoriety. That's, the pursuit of his heart had nothing to do with any form of selfish ambition. It actually shows that in the midst of great favor, in the midst of doors flinging wide open, in the midst of people calling on him and saying, I want you to come and, and preach here, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do that. We love you, Jesus. In the midst of everybody loving him, he still demonstrates that his greatest desire was to get alone with the Father. And I just love this. I've been to Israel several times, and my, my favorite place is kind of a unique place, but my favorite thing to do when I go to Israel is I love to go to Galilee and Galilee is really a lake. It's not a sea. It's like a big lake. And you go there to the Lake of Galilee, as I call it, and you look out there and surrounding this big sea of Galilee it are all these big hills. And one of my favorite things to do, I, just, I got to do it just a few months ago when I was there, and I got to hike up one of these hills. And the reason I wanted to hike up one of these hills is because I wanted to go hang out on possibly one of the hills that Jesus spent time alone with the Father, God with God on the earth. Like, whoa, come on, God hanging out with God on the earth. I wanted to be there. Now, you go on tours, you pay $5,000. They won't take you to the top of those hills, nor do most people want to walk to the top of the hills. They're really, really hard. But for me, when I go to Israel, like I'm telling you, the number one thing I want to do is I want to go to Galilee. I want to Look at, I want to look at the lake. I think it's beautiful, but I want to go to the top of one of those hills and I want to just hang out there and be like, wow, this is where God met with God. Like right here, maybe, or maybe over there on that hill. Because what I, what I see in the life of Jesus, it's not only here in Mark chapter one, but throughout his ministry, there was a great demand on his life. There was a great anointing on his life. The Holy Spirit rested upon Jesus. He's the son of God. He's doing great miracles. He's doing great things for people. But one of the things I see is that his greatest passion was not doing all these great things just for the sake of doing them or getting notoriety or performing, but he did those things actually out of the overflow of what he was doing with the Father, his time spending with the Father. And fruitfulness and effectiveness in our lives, being successful and doing the things that God has called us to do, 
is, is not found in how much we can strive or try to make things happen, but it's found into the level that we can actually learn to abide in Jesus. And if you read John chapter 15, that's my life's passage is John chapter 15. My life's mission statement is this, is my, my life's mission is to abide in the love of Jesus, to abide in God in such a way, to remain in relationship with him in such a way that I would inspire countless others to pursue him, not me, pursue him with reckless abandon. That's the word over my life. That's my calling. And when God spoke that to me, one of the cool things that, that I felt like was liberating about the, the mission statement that God gave me personally is when he said that, he showed me, he's like, Andrew, you could go be a janitor at a high school and fulfill your calling to abide in me and inspire others to want to know me just as much. If I told you to go be a janitor, you could do it just as much there as if you, whatever, pastored a church or did some sort of ministry. And I realized, wow, my greatest calling isn't to perform. My greatest calling isn't to try to be good enough or try to do enough. My greatest calling, my greatest mandate is actually to connect with the Lord. Like the, the end isn't success. The end is the Lord himself. Because we were not created just for success or just, we're not little worker bees in the eyes of God. We are his sons. We are his daughters. And we were created for relationship. And that's what he desires first and foremost. Am I speaking to you guys? And I believe he wants to liberate us from what the world says. The world says, get what you can get. Be successful. You know, get more. Don't be happy. Don't be satisfied. With where you're at, you don't have enough. You need more. No, that's still not enough. Go get more. Nope, that's not enough either. Get more, right? That's every message the world system conveys is it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. And the world is actually right. It never is enough, and it never will satisfy us. No amount of success in ministry, no amount of success in business, no amount of money, no amount of cars or boats or whatever you think is going to make you happy, relationships, getting married, Whatever, it's not going to fulfill you and satisfy you because the one thing that you were created for that nothing else can meet that need is, is intimacy and relationship with the Father. It's actually knowing God and living in communion with him. And I love this passage because it says he rose very early in the morning while it was still dark and he departed and went out to a desolate place where he prayed. Here, I want to I point out two things about this passage. Number one. It required sacrifice for Jesus to do what he did right here in this verse. Mark 1.35 was a sacrifice. To live a lifestyle of prayer, to live a lifestyle of intimacy with God, it's going to require sacrifice. Everyone say sacrifice. Okay. Now, I want to point out a couple things. There was no electricity 2,000 years ago. So there was no lights anywhere, wherever he was, in the hills of Galilee. There was no lighting there was no cell phones. They didn't have alarm clocks. Uh, they didn't have, you know, the, the uh, what is, uh, sorry, the Amazon little thing. The, uh, they didn't have Alexa to wake them up in the morning, right? For Jesus to wake up before dark showed a great measure of discipline and sacrifice. Like, you, you realize like back then you woke up when the sun got up or you had to have practiced a high level of discipline to wake up before the sun came up. And Jesus shows right here that it, it was still dark and he still got up and he went away. 
A lifestyle of prayer first begins with dying to self, doing what's hard, getting up early, staying late. A lifestyle of prayer actually begins with sacrifice. And I'm going to talk more about this in just a minute, but I just want to kind of land that there. I think we all kind of understand, right? How many guys know that prayer requires some measure of sacrifice? Raise your hand if you agree with me right there. So it requires a measure of sacrifice to live a lifestyle of prayer. And Jesus demonstrates that and, and shows that, it, that he thought it was worth it. The second thing that it requires of, of us is a commitment to solitude. So number one is sacrifice. Number two is solitude. Jesus left the comfort of where he was staying. He made time to get away from all the business and the people surrounding him. There was constant needs. There were constant demands. He wasn't driven by needs, but was rather driven by the Holy Spirit and directed by the Father and everything. It's okay to be alone. It's okay to be quiet. It's okay to not have your phone. It's okay to do nothing. One of the things that I see right here is he said he departed to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In fact, in verse 36, it says, Simon and those who were with him, they searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. When's the last time in your life that you got so alone with the Lord that when you turned back your phone on or you came back from that wilderness place that many, many people were searching for you and wondering why you thought you had the right to do that? Because if that isn't happening to you on a regular basis, I would challenge you if you really even have a prayer life. Because Jesus... He had the demands. He had the ministry opportunities. He had the stuff going on. He was rising in popularity. He was like a, you know, mega superstar in Israel already. Mark chapter one, boom, everyone knew him. And yet he still found time to put himself in places where these guys had to run around those hills of Galilee, search for him. They finally found him and they're like, everyone's been looking for you. When's the last time someone said, we've been looking for you. I've been calling you. Where have you been? We needed you and we couldn't find you. And you're like, well, I was, you know, alone with my father. When's the last time you had that experience? I would encourage you, and I would, I would just commend you right now that you actually have permission to put yourself in situations with the Lord where people can't get a hold of you. Even your wife. Even your kids. Like, if, you, if you're married, find a place where your, your, your spouse is willing to watch the kids and you have a space of time where no one, can get a, no one can get a hold of you. And do that for your spouse as well. But also, if you're, maybe you're not worried about kids and that's not the dynamic you're worried about, you actually have permission. It's okay to turn your phone off. It's okay to like, God forbid, I mean, just imagine 24 hours, your phone off. When's the last time, raise your hand, when's the, when's the last time in the last month one of you turned your phone off for 24 hours? Okay, come on. Okay? I just want to encourage you to turn your phone off at least once a month for 24 hours and dedicate that time to your family and to the Lord as a Shabbat, as a, Lord, I give you this moment, I give you this time. And I think that, you know, today we don't have necessarily people chasing after us, but we definitely have people that are, are, are pursuing us all the time through this. You guys hear what I'm saying, right? The last thing that I, that I want to say is, is just simply this. This is, what I, this is really the revelation that I feel like that, um, that the Lord gave me. We understand that, that living a lifestyle of prayer is going to require sacrifice. We understand that it's going to require a lifestyle of solitude. But that's, a lot of that is doing, okay? 
And that requires discipline. That requires you getting out of your comfort zone to do those things, okay? And what I'm learning about prayer and what I'm learning about fasting and intimacy with God is that discipline is not enough to drive me to the prayer closet. Discipline only lasts for a period of time. Like when my schedule changes or when we have a new baby, you know, every, my whole world's flipped upside down. And it's like, well, well, now how do I handle my discipline? I got to reinvent, you know, the whole discipline that I was maintaining. Discipline will only last for, for a small period of time. God's not calling us to a lifestyle of discipline in prayer. He's calling us to a lifestyle of expectancy and faith. And this is just really, this is like the one point that I want to make. And this is what I feel like uh, that I wanted to encourage everyone with is just this, that Faith and expectancy create and cultivate an environment inside of our hearts where discipline can grow. Does that make sense? So faith and expectancy create an environment inside of us where the disciplines of following the Lord can grow. And here's, what, here's a simple point that I, that I want to add to that is when we look at our lives and we see that the Lord's calling us to wake up early, right, or stay up late or turn off our phone or get away into a, a, a place of solitude to spend time with the Lord, uh, just us being like, okay, Andrew said I'm supposed to do that, so I'm going to do that, that's only going to last. Maybe For some of you, it might last like till tomorrow, right? Some of you, it might last a week. Some of you, maybe a month. For some of you, maybe even a year, right? But here, here's the thing that will actually drive you into a lifestyle of what I'm talking about is having a sense of faith and expectancy for those moments. If you have an apprehension that if you wake up very, very early and meet with God, that God's going to meet you there, he's going to touch your life and change your life, if you have a sense of expectancy tied to that, the discipline is almost like an afterthought. It's not even a discipline. It's, a, it's truly a desire to get up early and to spend time alone with the Lord. And I want to just demonstrate it through my oldest son, Landon. Uh, every day, 364 days out of the year, we have trouble getting him to wake up. Except, well, actually, it would be two days a year. And just recently, he turned 12 years old. And guess what time he woke up? 4.30 in the morning. I've never seen that kid wake up at 4.30 in the morning in my life. But he was turning 12 and was going to get to do some fun stuff for his birthday. So he woke up at 4.30 in the morning. Now, was that as a result of discipline or desire? Christmas. How many of you guys remember Christmas? Was it a matter of discipline or desire when you got up at 6 a.m. and shook your parents awake and they were exhausted from staying up all night wrapping presents and you dragged them downstairs and said, you know, come on, let's do this. How many of you guys remember that? Was that driven by discipline or desire? So here's what I feel like the Lord wants to impart. I feel like the Lord just wants to impart a fresh measure and a grace to actually just desire him. Because discipline will only last for a short season. But if, you, if, you, if your heart is gripped with a fire and a passion to know the Lord, it, it, it's not even a matter of discipline. You don't even second guess abiding time with the Lord, connecting with him, intimate time with him, turning your phone off isn't even a question. Getting alone with him isn't even a question because your desire is connected to that behavior. It's not just discipline. And I think a lot of times in church we feel like, well, we, I'm going to come to church, I'm going to become a you know, better person, and I'm going to start to like do the stuff that Christians do, right? But that's not, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is all about following Jesus, 
And what that means is that as we begin to follow him, he begins to actually transform our lives and give us holy desires that we would desire himself, that we would desire to pray, that we would desire to, to get away with him. And I believe that the Lord wants to deposit that desire in our lives. Do you guys receive this right now? So again, I just want to say this. You know, expectancy and faith cultivate inside of you an environment where disciplines can grow. So if you want to grow in the discipline of fasting, okay, create some faith and expectation that if you fast something, God's going to do something. If you want to grow in prayer, do the same thing. Challenge yourself. Do I really even think if I pray, God's going to meet with me? And the last example I want to give you guys is I just want to, you know, I don't know what all you guys think about President Trump. I'm not even talking about politics, but I just want everyone to imagine this simple situation. I want you to imagine that you get a phone call later today from Vice President Mike Pence, and he says, uh, Pastor Grant, hey, uh, this is Vice President Mike Pence. How are you? Great, great. I'm doing well. Listen, uh, President Trump actually wants to have a meeting with you every day for the next year, and he wants you to speak to him and counsel him on global issues and influence the very decisions he's going to make concerning America and the entire world. Uh, could you wake up at 4.30 in the morning the next, you know, 52 weeks and counsel President Donald Trump? How many of you know if you had that appointment, just out of curiosity, you would keep it at least for a pretty long time, right? You wouldn't want to miss that because you're going to get on the phone with the most powerful man in the world and you can actually influence his heart and influence his decisions. You wouldn't miss that for anything. You would wake up at 3.30 in the morning. You'd be on the phone with Don. Just imagine, hey, Donald, listen, I need to talk to you. I saw that CNN report about your tweet yesterday. We got to hold that back, bud. Like, I'd stop that, okay? You know? And he actually starts to, to, to move in response. How many of you would keep that appointment? Raise your hand. If you had that kind of influence globally. Well, here's, here's what I want to tell you. Prayer is that times a billion times a billion. Because President Trump's influence in global, you know, it's like this compared to Almighty God. And guys, we have an open invitation at any point to pick up the phone and call him. And the amazing thing you see throughout the entire scriptures is we actually, in the midst of the sovereignty of God, we still also have permission to, to move God and to influence his, very, his decisions on the earth. Isn't that astounding and mind-blowing? We can have that appointment with the Lord. When you start to view prayer as with that kind of perspective and you start to realize, wow, I can have global influence every morning and shift the nations. Yes. You're going to get up for that phone call. You're going to get up for that time with the Lord because you, you actually have a sense of expectancy. How many of you feel like you need a fresh sense of expectancy in your, in your prayer life? Raise your hand right now. I want to just pray. Just stand up right now. I just want to pray for those of you that, that, that said that's, that's what you'd like. And then I want to pray for everyone because I think we can all use a fresh, a fresh sense of expectancy in prayer. Lord, I just ask you right now to deposit in us a desire to meet with you, a desire to spend time with you, Lord. I pray, God, that you would awaken love in our hearts, God, desire in us, Lord, to, to know you more. Lord, would you do that even right now? We just receive that. We just received that. Thank you, Lord, for removing guilt and shame for maybe not ever doing enough or feeling like we're not doing enough. Thank you for removing that right now and replacing it very simply just with desire to know you, desire to meet with you. And if you receive that right now, say, Lord, I want my heart to burn for you.
Fill my heart with desire. Fill my heart with expectancy. Give me a fresh measure of faith today so that I can meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Who receives that? I want to I close with one last story. And the simple story is I was at the Billy Graham uh, Evangelistic Association about five years ago, and I was going through the library. It's this tour of Billy Graham's life. It's one of my favorite places to go. And I'm going through this tour, and it's all these pictures of Billy Graham. And most of all of the pictures are basically depicting Billy Graham as this great man of God preaching to the multitudes and meeting with presidents. That's like the whole thing is go look at pictures of Billy Graham meeting with famous people and preaching to mass crowds, right? Billy Graham's important is like the whole thing. But Jesus is awesome, right? And then you get to this place, and there's this little like 1970s television tucked away in this little area, and there's a video playing on it. And I stop, and I start looking at it, and, and as I'm watching it it's, uh, it, it's Billy Graham's last public interview on, on television. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, I would like to hear what he has to say. And he's asked this question. He said, they, they said, um, the interviewer said, listen, Billy, you've had a great, great run. You've done a lot of great things. If there's anything in your life that you could change, what would you change? And he knew immediately. He said, if I could do anything different, he said, I would take less speaking engagements. I would do less. I, I would have I done so many things differently so I could have spent more time with Jesus Christ. He said, he said, as I look back, I did too much. He said, as I look back at my life, I wish I would have spent more time with the Lord. That was his greatest regret. The most successful minister in all of history, <laughs> his greatest regret was not some bad message he preached. It was actually the fact that he got so consumed with the demands on his life that he forgot his first love. And I would encourage each one of us, if Billy Graham, if that was his greatest regret, I would encourage us to not let that be our greatest regret, but that we would give ourselves to spending time with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Grant. I'll give it up for Andrew. Thank you. How do we take this challenge of living as people who abide in Jesus every day? Uh, the thing that stuck out to me, Andrew, that's maybe an obvious for many of us, is there's so much addiction to just being on your phone all the time. I hate phones, and I find myself even struggling to say, no, I need to, I need to cut this thing off. And so can I challenge you this week? Uh, what does it look like for you to be a person of sacrifice and solitude to enter into those places? If you want to see your family transformed, your city transformed, your workplace transformed, it's going to take sacrifice, and it's going to take being a person of solitude. But man, let us form that in desire first, not just in discipline. Andrew, thanks for sharing. That was a powerful word.